Well, good morning, church. It sounds with a mask on. It sounds like good morning. It does, doesn't it? That's okay. That's all right. It's good to see everybody this morning. I want to be called to worship this morning from a few verses from Psalm 113. And the psalmist writes under inspiration of the Spirit about who is like the Lord our God. Because he really ought to be and must be our focus as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship. And the scripture says this. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? And the implied answer is, there is none like the Lord our God who is seated on high. This morning we get to come together and sing some older songs, some older hymns that are deeply personal, that really reflect much of what we see in the Psalms. We sing of that time when, the, when Christ comes back and we will fly away and go to be with Christ in glory and resurrected bodies. We'll sing of the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me, that it's so sweet to trust in Jesus. So church, let's stand together and let's sing and let's worship together. One, two, three, four. Some glad morning, some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away, oh, I'll fly away, oh, glory, I'll fly away. In the morning, when I die, hallelujah.
Father of mercy, thank you for the gift of song, a restored song, a new song, a song placed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, grounded by the all-sufficient finished work of the Son of God, our substitute, the Lord of the covenant, the servant of the covenant. And we declare this morning, yours, O triune God, is the greatness and the power, and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Lord, for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Of course, we recognize 
that your name is exalted supremely and definitively in the exaltation of the victorious God-man, the man Christ Jesus. And we come to you, O Father, through the Son this morning and by the Spirit. And we declare you are great. We declare that you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all your perfections and all your attributes. Father, this morning we pray with the psalmist that you would light up our eyes that we may behold your glory in the face of your Son. That's what we need above all other things this morning is to behold. We recognize as we behold the living God, we are transformed. We are conformed into the image of the Son of God and that by the Spirit of God. May we behold today through song, through prayers, and through the preaching and the hearing of the Word of Christ. That's what we long for this morning, Lord. And we ask this for your Son's sake. Amen. Amen, church. One of the great blessings, one of the many blessings is it to, to be in Christ and to know Christ. Paul says is that we have peace with God. And so it's right for us to mention and to sing songs that how sweet it is to trust in Christ. We know as Bible-believing Christians, those of us who are in Christ here this morning and those viewing over Facebook, we know that in our lostness and in our sin, we never would have had the eyes to see or the faith to believe had not Christ come and sought us and bought us and the Spirit applied the accomplished work of Christ that Brian just prayed about. So church, let's stand together and sing of the sweetness of trusting in Christ. Trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know the saith the Lord. Oh, how sweet! Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to trust his cleansing blood and in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing cleansing blood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove. Trust him more. Yes, yes, to me. 
Praising our Savior all the day long with lives that worship and honor you as we love you with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we thank you for the gift of song, of being able to come and to being, a- being able to sing and to sing what's in our hearts and in the hearts of all those who are converted and have their eyes turned towards Christ. And Lord, to the degree that we come in this morning distracted by so many things that vie for our attention, we pray, as David prayed, that you would incline our hearts to your word. And we pray that because we're so easily inclined towards other things, and our hearts are so easily disinclined from hearing what you have said. And so now, Lord, clear away all the the underbrush from our minds, from our hearts. Burn it away. So as your word is preached, we have eyes to see and ears that can hear. We thank you for the rich assurance that is found only in Christ and that peace that passes all understanding. And we can say above all people on the earth that come what may, our Christ, our Savior, will never, ever turn away from us 
betray us or be anything but faithful. And so with a song on our hearts, we come to you this morning as our brother sings over the text as it is explained and applied. May it be so, may be done in power so that we would have changed lives by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. And we ask all these things by your spirit and through Christ, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to 2 Samuel 17. Thank you, Barry and worship band and team for leading us. I love that song, Blessed Assurance. One of my heroes of the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor at Westminster Chapel in the mid-20th century. When he was a young pastor, he was at a conference during a question and answer time. Someone asked him, good doctor, could you tell us what a Christian is? He said, well, actually, it would take me months to describe what a Christian is. And an elderly lady on the front row of the conference raised her hand, and she said, could I answer that question? And he said, sure. She said, a, a Christian is an heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. A Christian is someone who can say, this is my story, this is my song. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said he learned a whole lot from that lady that afternoon, that conference, early in his ministry. And that's who we are as the people of God. We can say that same thing. Our assurance, and this is what makes Christianity distinct from every other religion in the world. We're the only ones that can say we have assurance. Because our assurance is based not on our performance or works. It's based on the performance and the works of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray and we'll get into our, our text this morning. Father, mercy, thank you that we can sing that song. Indeed, by your grace, by your mercy, grounded by the finished work of your son, Jesus, we are heirs of salvation. We have been purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been born of your spirit and washed in the blood of our Christ. And this is our story. And I pray that we could understand that story even better today after having meditated upon 2 Samuel 17. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. If I were to tell you that I was a Jehovah's Witness... In one sense, that's true. The Lord is Jehovah, and I am his witness. So are you. But I cannot, and I do not, use that language, that terminology, because it has been hijacked by a cult. A cult that denies the Trinity, the triunity of God. A cult that denies the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, a cult that denies penal substitution and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's just the beginning of what they deny. In the same way, all of us can say, as Christians, without reservation, all ethnicities are created equally as God's image bearers. Equally. Which means all ethnicities, whatever 
your degree of melanin in your skin, you are equally the image of God. I have a son who was actually born in Africa. He has more melanin in his skin than my other children. And his life matters as much as any of my other children. But black lives matter. Like Jehovah's Witnesses, is at its core a movement that is vitriolic to true Christianity. And in many ways, offers a rival savior, a rival salvation, and a rival judgment. For example, in their official statement, two of their three co-founders are trained, convictional Marxists. In their official statement, blacklivesmatter.com, you can see this, you can go to their website. They say this, we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. Now what is cisgender privilege? Well, cisgender is essentially the gender you were given at birth, assigned at, your, uh, at birth by God. All right? And you identify by that gender. That's how they define it. It's incredible new terms that we have come across. And uplift black trans, that is transgender folk, especially black transgender women. We build a space that is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. In this movement, male leadership is anathema. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. In other words, there's a lot of kids who don't have a dad present. So they need the government to be their dad and provide for the mom so that she can have time for social justice work. We dis disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. You get that. Western prescribed. It's a nuclear family structure. A mom, a dad, children in the home. That is, in their estimation, a social construct. See, when you reject the revelation of God, that becomes a social construct. They are out to dismantle that. In their words, that's what they say. We foster a queer-affirming Network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the light grip of heteronormative, that is male-female thinking. That is their statement of faith. Now, to understand the Black Lives Matter movement, we need to understand just briefly here, broadly, 
a cultural Marxist perspective called critical race theory. Which means to understand its two primary claims. First of all, everyone, without exception, is divided into two groups. Those who have power and those who don't. Secondly, those who have power always oppress those who don't. That's critical race theory. Now, how do we know who we are? It's based on your group identity. Things like your ethnicity, your gender, your gender as you see it, your sexual orientation. Of course, someone may be part of an oppressor group in one way and an oppressed group in another way. And that's where the concept of intersectionality comes in. It seeks to measure someone's level of oppression based on how many groups they are in. So, for instance, a black man is more oppressed than a white man. But a black woman is more oppressed than a black man. And a black gay woman is more oppressed than all of the above. And the degree to which you are oppressed determines your level of moral authority. Now that's important. The more you are oppressed, the more moral authority you have. And so the experience and perspective of a gay black woman is more valuable than the experience and perspective of a black woman or of a black man. The experience and perspective of a black man is more valuable than a white heterosexual man. Likewise, the more oppressed someone is, the less moral responsibility that person has. And those who aren't oppressed, and the top of that chain is white men, heterosexual men, those who aren't oppressed have moral authority only by surrendering to those who are oppressed. That's what it means to be woke. All right? But this is sub-Christian, this view, indeed anti-Christian for at least three reasons, and we could certainly add to these three, but I think at the heart, critical race theory has a different view of humanity than Christianity. Critical race theorists argue that our identity is fundamentally bound up in our ethnicity, our skin color, our gender, our gender identity, our sexual orientation, our religion, our socioeconomic status. Things that differ from person to person. Where scripture grounds our identity fundamentally in the fact that all humanity, every Ethnicity, no matter your skin color, 
is bound up in the fact that we are created equally as the image of God. Second, critical race theory offers a different view of sin. The the Bible teaches us that sin is any transgression of our conformity to, our lack of conformity to, the law of God. And that certainly includes oppression. Of course, we have to define what oppression is. That's a whole other discussion. But critical race theory identifies sin only as oppression. That is sin. So critical race theorists and their advocates would see that biblical mandates such as teaching, discipleship, and discipline... They are sinful assertions of power if they come from the oppressor group. If the speaker is in the oppressor category. But they would also excuse such sins as hatred, violence, bitterness, jealousy, covetousness, and unforgiveness from if it comes from the oppressed. The scripture says we're all equally guilty and we're all sinful regardless of our ethnicity. Of course, because they have that view of sin, their view of salvation is different as well. Critical race theory offers a different, completely different view of salvation. If the oppressors are guilty and those who are oppressed are not guilty, they're innocent, then salvation is found only in liberation from the oppression and from the powers. You see, they they perceive that their primary problem is outside of them, right? The Bible teaches that our Biggest problem is inside of us, and the solution is outside of us in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so social liberation is essentially an equality of outcomes. What we would call socialism. And perhaps if you you consider these two founders are Marxist, communism itself. In other words... Critical race theory has a different understanding of who we are as God's image bearers. They don't consider that. What the problem is and how to fix it. That is at its heart, I think, the difference between what they believe and what the scripture clearly teaches. And this drives the Black Lives Matter movement. To make matters more bleak, This group has political sway today that would have been unimaginable just weeks ago, just months ago. And according to data from Civics, which is an online survey research firm, by a 28-point margin, a majority of Americans support the movement. And this is highly disheartening given the sub 
Christian, anti-Christian tenets of the movement. Thankfully, one of the crucial truths that Scripture teaches us is that we may not know all the details of what God is doing. We certainly don't. But we do know what He's promised. And we know what He has accomplished based on that promise in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come as our substitute to redeem us from this fallen world, in whose the ruler of this age is the devil himself. And he has accomplished salvation. He, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. He took the, the sanctions of law-breaking on the cross by dying, taking the curse that we deserve, and was raised from the grave, and the verdict was reversed. The curse has been reversed on those who would trust in him. And that is the first fruits of what will one day be a cosmic new creation, the kingdom of God. And when we take God's promises and his all-sufficient accomplishment in Jesus seriously, I mean, when it actually informs the way you think, what you believe, your hopes, we know that even the most powerful human movements are terminable. We know that, don't we? We believe that. For example, if we had lived in the days of Tiberius, who was the emperor in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, the plans to destroy Jesus from the religious powers and the government would have seemed foolproof. Completely unstoppable. But we are gathered here today because the plans failed. The kingdom of God continues to spread. The kingdom centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. As a Wesley hymn reminds us, His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to Jesus given. Amen? And yet, in particular dark moments in history, and I believe this is the darkest moment in my life, my lifetime, and perhaps your lifetime as well, the permanency of the kingdom of God looks much more uncertain than what we confess because of all kinds of Zebas and Shimeis and Ahithophels and Absaloms who are on the loose. And that's why we need to be mindful of the promise. Promise made to David, for instance, 2 Samuel 7. You're going to have a son who's going to have an everlasting kingdom. Or Daniel 2, we looked at this a few years ago. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And that serves, those truths serve as the backdrop to this chapter should serve as the backdrop to our lives because it shows us simultaneously that God's kingdom can be under attack while at the same time prevail and drive home hope to us. And that's because of the Lord's faithful sovereignty. In fact, we see this sovereignty at the very beginning of this passage 
We see the hiddenness. How about that for ironic language? We see the hiddenness of the Lord's sovereignty in verses 1 to 14. And what the text here, what the text here wants to show us and, and drive home to us, even when God's sovereignty, what does sovereignty mean? It just means he's in control of everything. He sits enthroned. Nothing catches him off guard. He is directing the affairs of this world towards its Christocentric, Christ-centered end. Even when God's sovereignty seems imperceptible, we, as the people of God, can live with that. We can live with that because we know that God is there. And he is at work. I think that's the backdrop of this chapter. So look with me in verse 1. Moreover, now, remember chapter 17 didn't exist when the writer wrote this. So let's go back to verse 23 of chapter 16 to get a little context. In those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave. Now, Ahithophel was, had been David's mighty counselor, but he had betrayed him. Like Judas betrayed David, or Jesus, Ahithophel had betrayed David for Absalom. In those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Chapter 17, moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, he knew David's tendencies, like many of us, prone to discouragement. Praise God, though, we see David working out that encouragement, discouragement in his psalms. And throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. So this is going to be a surgical strike. There's not going to be any collateral damage. I'm just going to come down and I'm going to kill David. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. In other words, we're, we, we don't want there to be a lot of collateral damage, or there will be an uprising against you. But if I just get the one, then all the people are going to be at peace, and they're going to follow you. That's what he tells him. Notice in verse 4. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And yet, even with what chapter 16, 23 says, that Absalom's counsel was as if someone consulted the word of God. Even with that, and even with the fact that this advice resonated with Absalom and all of his elders... Absalom senses the need to appeal to Hushai. Hushai was David's friend. David had sent him back, remember, to Jerusalem to serve his ears on the ground. So he's kind of serving as a double agent. It's remarkable that he consults with Hushai at this point. Makes no sense on paper. Verse 5, then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also. And let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, 
Thus has Hethophel spoken, Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And so the plan seems foolproof at this point. Ahithophel has given good counsel to Absalom on how to take out David. It seems completely unstoppable, like certain movements we see today. Except for a couple of things unknown to everyone in this text. First of all, David had prayed. Don't underestimate prayer. Prayer flexes the muscles of an omnipotent God. Back in chapter 15, verse 31, David had prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And the second thing they didn't know was that David had sent Hushai back to Jerusalem to defeat Ahithophel's counsel. So David trusted in the Lord, but he carried out his human responsibility. Chapter 15, verse 34. Now notice in verse 7, in amazing, glorious language here, spoken by the friend of David, then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. In fact, in the Hebrew, the first two words are not good. Imagine the courage. Ahithophel speaks counsel if it's the very word of God. Hushai is a double agent. He's David's friend. And he says, terrible, terrible counsel. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men. And that they are enraged. This reminds me if you've ever seen Rambo, the colonel describing Rambo. Like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. You don't know anything about war, in other words. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack... Whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. He's saying, if you go in there with just 12,000 men, it's going to get ugly on your side. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows, all Israel, that your father is a mighty man. And that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel, this is Hushai speaking as a double agent to Absalom. My counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. In other words, Ahithophel's counsel is that 12,000 men go in that. That's not enough men. All of Israel needs to be gathered. From Dan, that is the very northern part of Israel, to Beersheba, the southern part of Israel. As the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. Don't give the honor and the glory to Ahithophel. You go in there. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. 
and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. You don't need to do a surgical strike. You need to go in and do a slaughter. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. Now, what is Hushai doing there? He knows this man is a narcissist. All right? And so he's, he knows he's dealing with a murderer. And a, a murderer who, as Peter Lightheart points out, burned down fields when his phone calls weren't returned. Of course, Hushai's real motive is to give David time to escape. Ahithophel wants to go that night. And what Hushai is counseling is that this is going to take time. We've got to gather all the soldiers from Dan to Beersheba. That's going to take some time. This has got to be planned out. If you don't plan this out, David is going to, is going to win this. But he's, 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 what he's doing, he's trying to delay. Now notice in verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. That's incredible. That would have been unheard of. Ahithophel is the counselor whose words are like the very words of God to the people. And all of a sudden, Absalom is esteeming the counsel of Hushai, David's friend. remarkable to me now is this because Hushai is so persuasive is this because Hushai is just such a wordsmith no the second part of verse 14 explains how this went down and this should be so encouraging to us in this day second part of verse 14 for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel Actually, Ahithophel's counsel was good. It would have worked, in other words. But the Lord had ordained to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon, upon Absalom. Roger Ellsworth says, The evil of our day seems quite as invincible as Ahithophel's counsel. It does, doesn't it? But the same God who set, who sovereignly set the boundaries for Ahithophel does the same with evil today. In other words, to put it another way, the Lord has answered David's prayer. What if we spent more time praying than we did anything else in these cultural battles? But the Lord's purpose in so doing, even as he answered David's prayer, was to bring judgment on Absalom. Don't forget that. In other words, Absalom is whittling the stick by which God will thrash him. He's been doing that all along. 
Again, this is another example of what we call compatibilism. God is sovereign, and, and we are responsible agents. What God, Absalom had done was from one standpoint, the Lord's doing. Remember in chapter 12, when Nathan told David that I'm going to raise up evil from your house. So Absalom was the very embodiment of that evil. God's discipline on David's house because of David's high-handed sins. And yet Absalom is responsible. He's a responsible agent. He is culpable for his wickedness. The people who nailed Jesus to the cross, it says was the cross was by the foreordination of God himself. And yet those people who nailed him to the cross were responsible agents. Don't try to understand the mystery of that. J.F. Packer, who left us on Friday, who is experiencing more uh, joy and, and gladness of soul than any of us right now, famously wrote his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and he uses the term antinomy to describe this relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Those two truths are not at odds with one another, even though our finite brains cannot fully comprehend the doctrine of divine sovereignty isn't intended to answer all of your philosophical questions. It's intended for the believer's comfort. All right? This is comforting. When things look dark, God sits enthroned. And an essential aspect of God's sovereignty here is the fact that it's working under the radar, it's hidden. And he is using Absalom's success, apparent success, to make him blind to what's really happening. Providence is going against Absalom, and it looks like success to him. That is such an encouraging word for us. Proverbs 13, 21, listen to this. This has always been true and will always be true. Disaster pursues sinners. Disaster pursues sinners. It's like when Jonah rebelled. You remember when Jonah rebelled? All creation turned on him. The wind, the fish, the plants, the worms, the sun were all against him. He couldn't win. So if you're here, living in opposition to God, you are living opposed to the Word of God, let me just say this, all things are against you. Even if you may be experiencing success for a time. Proverbs 14, 14. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Why? Because Psalm 119.91 says, All things are the Lord's servants. All things are the Lord's servants. Everything in the created order is under the servanthood of the Lord. But whenever a man is in submission to God, a woman is in submission to God, as David is at this point in the narrative, everything marshals as God's army to care for him. Everything is marshalling as God's army to care 
for David in our passage. Again, Proverbs 14, 14, a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Remember when Israel was in Egypt. We saw this in Exodus. All creation turned on the Egyptians. They were in power for a time, but all creation turned on them. The Nile River, the sun, the gnats, the frogs, the hail. I remember preaching on the hail. We were in the, I think, <laughs> Carl of Virginia were that night. I'm preaching on the hail coming down on the Egyptians as one of those plagues. And as I'm preaching on that, hail is coming down outside of our building and hitting our windows. It's remarkable. It was at that point I realized I was called to the ministry. <laughs> but when you're with God, He can make even a sea open up and let you through. Right? As Del Ralph Davis states, His scepter... That is God's scepter. His ruling scepter is unseen. His sovereignty hidden behind the conversations and decisions and activities and crises of our lives. But through and over and behind it all, Yahweh rules. He is not absent, but neither is he obvious. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see. When we don't have eyes to see, we get really anxious and frustrated. Give us eyes to see. And this is a secret at this point that we, that the Lord is turning this back on Absalom, and the writer know, but no one else in the text here knows that. And that brings us to the second part of this, the, the encouragement of the Lord's sovereignty. Notice in verse 15, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, remember, David has sent them back as well. Eyes on the ground, ears on the ground. Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus and so I have counsel. So he, he informs them of the two completing plans. He does not know which plan at this point that Absalom is going to take. Hushai is in the dark, you know, as anyone else is. He shares the two competing plans. Notice in verse 16, Now therefore send quickly and tell David... Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, I love this, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, this is the sons of the two priests, were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Now this girl, she's in the city. And we don't know anything else about her except this. She's in the city, though she's a follower of David. So she's either in the city because her parents have rebelled against David and have submitted to Absalom, or she's in the city because the people she works for, serves, have rebelled against David. But she is a follower of the true king. And so she goes and tells the two sons of the priest this intelligence. This is what a young girl, maybe a teenage girl, 
who refuses to go with the populace out of submission to the true king does. But again, it reminds us God has his people. Notice in verse 18. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman of the house, saying, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman said to them, This is like Rahab. They have gone over the brook of water. This is wartime, and in wartime, the enemy who will not steward the truth is not owed the truth, okay? And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. This is just beautiful. After they had gone, verse 21, the men came up out of the well and went and told David... They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Again, they don't know what counsel that Absalom is going to follow. And so they're taking the worst scenario and running with it. Here's the question, though. Can God take care of a man who has nothing but a prayer? All David has right now is a prayer. God can do that, and we're seeing that. This is at the same time a very narrow escape, but also glorious evidence that the Lord is at work, hidden, but very present behind the scenes. But there's also another point here, I think. We need to remember this. This actually may end up being good for Christ church in America. I think Christ church in America, because it's not been costly to be a Christian, I think there's a lot of chaff in Christ church. And I think crises in a culture serves as a winnowing. Okay? And so, in this crisis, in this revolt, on the kingdom of God, there's a winnowing effect. And what we're learning is who is with the king and who isn't. And at this point, the majority is against the king. There's a minority with the king. All right? Notice in verse 22. Then David arose and all the people who were with him. They crossed the Jordan by daybreak. And I think the words there are intentional. Not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Daybreak. So what's happening here is the dark plan of Ahithophel's plans are over. And the light of David's kingdom is reappearing, reemerging from the darkness. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. This is probably the first time ever. He, his identity was bound up in that, right? He saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city, set his house in order... And we see for the one of six times in Scripture a suicide. 
he hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. When your identity is built on something that can be snatched away, it's a disaster waiting to happen. And doesn't Psalm 2, we looked at this a few weeks ago, teach us that you can't attack the kingdom of God without the balloon payment coming due. It comes due in time. Let God take care of that. Let's just pray and trust. In other words, the Ahithophels and the Karl Marxes of history will end up in the scrap heap of history because the Lord stands watch over his kingdom. That brings us to the final section. The provision of the Lord's sovereignty. God is providing manna in the wilderness for David. And that's not just a promise to this king. It's a promise to all God's people. Look with me in verse 24. Then David came to Mahanim. And Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. The, the, the battle's coming next week. All right. When David came to Mahanim, Jobai, the son of Nahash, from Reba of the Ammonites, and Maker, the son of Emil, from Lodabar and Barzillai, the Gileadat, from Roglim, brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils. Honey and curds and sheep, that's better than manna, right? And, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Can God's people be in the wilderness for seasons and God provide manna for them? Absolutely. Manna here, where they are, means two camps. That's important. Play on words. Last time we read about Amanim was Ishbosheth had set up his throne in Manim. Means two camps. And remember, Ishbosheth was the rival king to David. And what happened there? He went down. Because when you, when you attack the true king, the balloon payment comes due. Well, again, there's two camps. David is here now. And the other camp is the rival king, Absalom. In fact, Israel and Absalom, notice that language here. Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. This indicates that the nation as a whole had rejected David. Does that feel like that today? 
Does it feel that way today? You look in our culture, and it, does any, are there any, is there anyone that has not bowed the knee to Baal? It looks like the whole nation has rejected David for a rival king. And yet chapter 17 ends. How does it end? It reminds us once again that where you have the anointed king and faithful subjects, you have the kingdom of God. You have the kingdom of God. Gathering every Sunday reminds us God's kingdom is still at work. The king continues to sit enthroned. In fact, don't look past these names. Shobai, the son of Nahash. You remember Nahash? The Ammonite, whose name means serpent, who had fought against Saul. His son is now a follower of the true king. Remarkable. Maker. He's the son of a meal from Lodabar. We read about him in chapter 9. He was taking care of Mephibosheth. He was a sympathizer to Saul. Now he's a follower of the true king. And then this man named Barzillai, who's an 80 years old wealthy man. We'll read about him in chapter 19. This is a hodgepodge of people from all different ethnicities. Here's the question. What bound them together? All these people from all of these different ethnicities, all equally the image of God, what bound them together? An atheistic social movement? No. Commitment to the same king. That's what bound them together. Keep in mind, this battle is looming large. It hasn't happened yet, but it's about to happen in chapter 18. Absalom has the majority. He has all of Israel. The numbers favor this rival king. And these few stood with David with a whole lot to lose. A whole lot to lose. But all that mattered to them was loyalty and submission to their king. I'm reading a biography on Stonewall Jackson right now. And this man was known for duty. And loyalty and there was a battle at uh, the mexican-american war and all of his troops deserted their post because fire was raining heavy on them all of them deserted their post the stonewall jackson years later he was teaching at vmi and his students said major why didn't you run when your command was so disabled and here's what he said I was not ordered to do so. I was directed to hold my position. That was these men. They had a king. And they were not going to abandon their post. Because they knew that king was going to prevail in the end. And we stand in the same relation to the one better than him. The son of David, the fulfillment of the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, King Jesus. And we stand even more so in relation to him because this mystical union that we have by grace through faith in him who has won the battle. You know it's already been won? Everything else is a mop-up operation. 
We've already had D-Day. Yes, there's, there's battles to come, like the Battle of the Bulge. But V-Day is on the way because D-Day has been accomplished. We have a greater king who took the cross that we deserve so that we could actually follow him. Was raised from the grave so that we might have forgiveness of sins. And so, no matter the assaults that come to him or to his people from the godless culture, we are under orders to stand in our confession. All right? And the encouraging thing about this text is, yes, this section reminds us, and we should never be surprised, that the kingdom of God is under attack, but all the while under protection. It's under attack, but it's under protection. And that we see in this text with a fallible king. And we have a better king and a better kingdom. One that cannot fail because it's grounded by his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. All right? And that means for us, and this is an important point, we close here. Our ultimate security does not rest on immunity from struggles and crises. All right? Our ultimate security does not rest on immunity from struggles and crises, but in the reality that God has established a kingdom in David's line that will stand forever. That is this word for us today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for that grace and mercy that comes to us. And Lord, when we see that you have saved your people, yes, that means eschatological and eternal salvation from, from sin and, and hell and the devil and from your wrath. But we recognize as well that salvation is all-encompassing. It also means provision, manna. It also means kingly protection from our exalted king. It also means grace and mercy from our priest and leadership directed by your word from our prophet, the God-man, the prophet, priest, and King Jesus. May we rest in that today. Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, Lord, I pray that they could see that this world is broken and hopeless and yet it, even though it may look like it's winning that it has a termination date and lord that it would sober them and lord that they would flee to jesus and be saved we pray for that today because we know at the end there's going to be one king standing and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our god and the kingdom of our christ In whose name we pray amen as we close, I would like you to voice this with me. There's something about God's people voicing, just like we sing together. I want us to voice this benediction together from the lips of King David at the end of his ministry when he had seen God do all of these mighty things. Let's speak this together. 1 Chronicles 29, 
11 to 13. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Amen.